The year is 1888. The place, it's Reefton, which if you don't know is a small town on the west coast. The people of Reefton, they're about to experience a major change in their lives. For years, they've relied on candles and kerosene lamps for lighting. The flickering glow casting a feeble shadow upon the streets. But now, there's a new technology about to come to town. Electricity. The man responsible for bringing electricity to Reefton is a chap by the name of Walter Prince. Prince is an engineer from England who came to Aotearoa in the 1880s. He's passionate about the potential of electricity, and he believes it will transform our lives. Prince convinces the good people of Reefton to build a hydroelectric power station. The power station is built on the Anangahua River, and it begins generating electricity in August 1888. The arrival of electricity in Reefton is a major event. For the first time, people have a reliable source of light at night. They can also use electricity to power their appliances, such as sewing machines and washing machines. It makes their lives easier and more comfortable. It also opens up new possibilities for the future. And with that hydro plant, Reefton becomes the first place in the country with a public power supply. It led the pack, but Reefton was ultimately just one of many towns that got electricity in the late 19th century. Electricity helped to modernise New Zealand, and it made us a more prosperous country. It also helped to improve the quality of life for all New Zealanders. Today we take it for granted, but it's important to remember that it wasn't always this way. The establishment of electricity in New Zealand was a major achievement. Welcome to Consume This with me, John Duffy. On this high-voltage episode, we're illuminating our electricity system. Specifically, we're looking back at the Electricity Industry Reform Act 1998, or as it's sometimes known, IRA. It's often also referred to after the minister of the time, Max Bradford, a.k.a. the Bradford Reforms. Whenever we discuss the Bradford Reforms, we're referring to that legislation and its colossal flow-on effects. Effects which, as we'll discover, polarised the nation and had a seismic effect on the way you buy your power. And of course, how much you're charged for it. As the Bradford Reforms celebrate their 25th anniversary, it's time for us to take stock and unpick what those impacts are. We ask whether the reforms have delivered on their promises. And, as we increasingly rely on our electricity to power our economy and dig us out of our climate change hole, what needs to happen now for the next 25 years? Throughout this episode, we'll hear from the political players behind the Bradford reforms, people like the eponymous Max Bradford. I've always been pretty upset frankly about having my name attached to them because they were the last stage of a really major overhaul of the electricity system but I got stuck with the last and most controversial stage. Former Prime Minister Dame Jenny Shipley. New Zealand had had 17 years where we were spending more than we earned as a nation and we'd racked up a debt of over 50% of GDP. You don't sit there and do nothing when you're in those circumstances. Economist and electricity enthusiast Jeff Bertram. And the Bradford reforms locked in the development of a cartel. It was all driven by the ideological imperatives rather than common sense. 
and the economics underlying the process were, in my view, wrong. As well as the people working on the ground, tasked with actually implementing the reforms. Industry consultant Dave Reeve. We can't do switching on the scale. We can't keep track of the meter. We can't keep track of the customers. I mean, the industry was a disaster. We actually couldn't do it. And Steve Batstone. So to go into the reforms and say, we're going to do this and prices are going to come down was bold. And I would say probably a bit naive. Before I started working at Consumer NZ, I really didn't spend a lot of time thinking about our electricity system. Like most people, I turn on the lights or plug something in and that's about it. I expect the system to work and I don't think too much about it, at least until the bill arrives. I imagine you might be the same, so I want to introduce someone who spends a lot, and I mean a lot, more time thinking about it, dreaming about it, muttering about it in his sleep. My colleague, and the person I most want to see wrestle a pony, electricity savant, and the real brains behind this story, power switch manager, Paul Fuge. Kia ora. So a natural first question, Paul, what exactly is electricity? <laughs> it's the lifeblood of the nation. And a, and a subsidiary <laughs> question, Paul, what exactly are the, are the Bradford reforms? So the first key point here is with the Bradford reforms is they're not what people think they are. It's become shorthand in a lot of people's minds for sort of a general electricity reforms. And the key point here is that, as Max alluded to, they're actually just a final stage in a whole lot of reforms. So you're talking about the mid-80s through to the end of the 90s, I think can probably be described as the reform period of which each government delivered particular elements. And uh, the chunk of the whole economy that the government dominated over that time diminished. And energy was just one of many, because we were trying to achieve a lot of things, the growth in the energy supply, getting some money coming in from not out of taxpayers' pockets, but rather the market itself. So it's completely incorrect to elevate the energy sector as if it was something special or isolated. This was a transformational period in the way in which New Zealand delivered government in order for the economy to grow larger. Well, my focus as the Minister of Energy was really on what did we need to do to finish the reform process that had started in the mid-80s, basically to separate the monopoly parts of the system from the potentially competitive parts. Successive governments really wanted to introduce competition to give people choice. And that's what the reforms that were associated with me did. That point on separating the competitive versus monopoly parts of the system is really the crux of the Bradford reforms. Reforms that, at their core, were all about competition. And to understand what that means, you need to know how the industry worked prior to reform. I bet you're going to talk about power pylons, aren't you, Paul? Well, I'd love to talk about electricity pylons, as most people would, but I haven't got time today. <laughs> so yeah, almost all of our electricity was generated by the government-owned Electricity Corporation of New Zealand, aka ECNZ. Now they also moved that power around the country via the high voltage transmission network, that's the national grid. Local electricity supply associations bought that electricity from ECNZ and transported it from the national grid into our homes and businesses. They also sold it to us. So you didn't have a choice who you bought your power from. It was determined by where you lived and which ESA owned the local lines. In Wellington, that would have been capital power. 
Although, I guess if you really hated your local supplier, you could technically move to a different city. It'd be quite an extreme thing to do though, wouldn't it? Yeah, I guess it would. (laughs) (laughs) So that system, that's the local transmission system and the local distribution system that bring the power into our homes. They're what you call natural monopolies. It doesn't really make sense for rival companies to duplicate all the power lines around the country. That would be stupid. Madness. And that was as clear 25 years ago as it is now. So everything else in the system, that's the electricity generation and retail, was seen as potentially competitive. And the goal of the Bradford reforms was to create that competition. Really, ever since the end of the war, the economic theory had been developing to show that where you had competition, prices generally would fall. If you looked at the statistics over a period of time, um, it was clear that New Zealanders were paying a hell of a lot more for their electricity than they needed to. Anybody who's done economics uh, knows that uh, you, you create a monopoly and it doesn't matter who owns it, whether it's government or privately owned, uh, will tend to maximise profits much more than a competitive sector would. And that's why the notion of competitive markets, wherever they might be, aviation, telecommunications, banking, you name it, uh, why that's so entrenched in people's attitudes. They want choice, they want the ability to say, I don't want to pay that price for this product which I can buy from down the road uh, from another supplier at a cheaper rate. Competition is a means to an end. Competition in its own right is lacking in merit. The evidence was that if you have multiple players, you will have a different outcome than if you have a monopoly player. Remember, at the very beginning, the monopolies were needing the support of taxpayers. What our objective was, was to get a much better balance so there'd be new investment and the pressures to keep prices down. And as we can hear in this clip of a much younger Max Bradford talking to RNZ in 1998, I have little doubt at all that prices will come down for consumers as a result of the reforms. He was very clearly very confident that the reforms would lower prices but it did come with a caveat. The decisions uh, as to what uh, prices will be charged will be in the hands of the power companies, not in the hands of the government. At the time, this was a radical shift in thinking. Today, the theory of competition is so ingrained in our lives that we tend to treat it as the default setting and apply it to almost everything. But it wasn't always the case. And there are some well-respected economists, people like Jeff Bertram, who still have different ideas. It simply isn't true that Natural monopoly has to mean price gouging, profiteering. It can perfectly well be done a different way. It's all to do with, firstly, the philosophy, the way in which the institutions are set up. It was a state-owned operation. It was a social service. Its job was to get the electricity cheaply to households to enable them to maintain a standard of living. It was clear that the proposals that were coming forward were liable to raise prices, not lower them. You know, that's such an interesting point that Jeff makes because... The whole idea that a monopoly could be philosophically against maximising profits is certainly not the narrative that we were... I mean, you'd remember the 80s a lot better than me, Paul, but through the 80s and 90s, that's not what we were sold as a narrative. Yeah, so the reform period was an interesting time, John. You know, it was a time of significant and rapid change, much of it quite controversial, but it was in response to the political realities of the day. Then Prime Minister Jenny Shipley is very clear that these had a significant impact on her government's decisions. That context is very important. I mean, we had simply got away with supplying Britain. They effectively paid us, and 
we lived happily ever after. They booted us out of the nest when they joined the EU, and a whole lot of things uh, became a a realisation. We weren't earning enough, we got into debt as a nation, heavily into debt, The, the World Bank was over our shoulder, and you don't sit there and do nothing. So that was the thinking that was driving the government's decision-making leading up to the Bradford reforms. Right, okay. The reforms themselves were really two separate but related steps. The first was arguably the least controversial, to introduce competition into generation. And they did this by splitting the state-owned ECNZ into three new companies, Genesis, Meridian and Mighty River Power, which we now know as Mercury. What about Contact? Yeah, so that's interesting about Contact. They were already spun out of ECNZ prior to this. Right, okay. So the thinking was, competition would put pressure on the power stations, incentivising them to become more efficient and win more customers. This, they believed, would increase investment in the sector and ultimately decrease our power prices. At the time I was involved in this, uh, we had the advantage of looking around the rest of the world where a number of countries were um, introducing competitive markets and it showed that prices could fall. So if you ask about why we were doing this, it was very clear that as we gave people clear signals that if they invested their capital, human capital and financial capital, they could be sure of the rules and they'd be rewarded. My personal opinion, even though I was an ECNZ at the time, was that the breakup of ECNZ actually probably, well, no, I'll go further than that, was a sensible idea and it did improve competitive outcomes in the market. And after leaving politics, Jenny Shipley went on to become chair of Genesis Energy, where she also claims to have seen this play out. I have sat at the board table and been in many situations with Genesis where you literally look at what the cost structure has gone up over the year and what price you think the market can bear. We have held prices. You know, different companies make rational market decisions about whether they'll pass on costs or whether they'll hold because of the competition in the market. It's not true that there's just a, oh, let's pass on costs. You want to hold your customers? Hold your customers is a very specific phrase to use here. Not grow or increase, hold. Under a market system, the returns in New Zealand come from consolidating a market share and then exploiting it ruthlessly. They do not come from expanding market share. And that kills competition. The incentive to compete is completely gone. So according to Jeff, The generators aren't actually trying to win new customers from each other. And without that competition, there isn't any more pressure on prices than in a monopoly system. In fact, he believes the loss of cross-subsidisation between power stations actually increased the price of electricity. If you were looking to be an independent generator coming into a market to generate, say, oil-fired or coal-fired or gas-fired or wind, any of those things, you would be having an entry price that would be above the price at which the New Zealand Electricity Division was supplying electricity, okay? In other words, no new generator in the 1980s could offer a cheaper wholesale product than NZED could produce with its integrated bundle of generating stations, cheap hydro there, expensive oil over there, gas and coal in the middle. They mixed it all together, they averaged the costs, they charged you the price that covered all the costs, And of course, that price was below what any new entrant generator could meet. People who were ideologically determined to have competing generation thought, how do we deal with this? Well, we've got to force the wholesale price up until it's efficient for people to come in. That's the neoliberal position. It's poisonous for consumers. Yes, it's nice to have competition where it works, 
where it delivers. It's not nice to have competition where it, it leads to government forcing the your existing supplier to raise their prices to enable the newcomers to make a profit. That's nuts. Look, there are undeniably some issues with the wholesale market. That's how our retailers buy electricity from the generators. Now, these market issues are quite technical, and we can't really get into them here. But overall, everyone we spoke to while researching this agreed that generation could be competitive. Even Jeff. Their differences lie in whether they believe that competition has been realised. There have been some new entrants, but the generation business is still dominated by the four players that were spun out of ECNZ 25 years ago. So, Paul, you used to work at ECNZ, didn't you? I did. In fact, I was actually one of the first people to be made redundant in the first wave of reforms in the mid-80s. And I just never left. Oh, that's right. You've told me this story. <laughs> you just kept turning up to work. Yeah. And they kept paying you. Yeah. And you're not still being paid, eh? Well, that was the funny thing. Like, um, I think like, cause I, because I was so young, it was my first job out of school, I didn't know how the world worked. And I got this letter from some fucking, I don't know, wrote letter that said, oh, thanks for your application for this job, you've been unsuccessful. And I said to my boss, what, what's this all about? And he goes, really a wily old guy. And he goes, I'll just throw it in the bin and see what happens. And um, so I did. And they just kept paying me. And then I was, I was working in the power station like ages later, like months later. And um, the foreman comes up to me and goes, so who, who are you like? like <laughs> and I was like, I'm Paul. And he goes, oh, who do you work for? And I was like, oh, I work for the electricity. And he goes, oh, He's like, I've been on the phone all morning and no one has heard of you. <laughs> and he was like, he's like, what are you? So I said, oh, yeah, I'm going off to a block course and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, you can't just keep turning up. Like, <laughs> I said, well, I am. And I just kept home, man. I just how I kept my job. Yeah. Because <laughs> they got rid of so many people so quickly. I just think they got rid of the people who got rid of the people who got rid of the people. So if you just can keep your head down. So, so what you're saying? It was a crazy these, time. It was these a crazy reforms time. were really well thought through and and clinically executed. They were implemented with under a lot of haste. I think they and they didn't have the systems to 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 do it like we do now. They just got rid of so many people so quickly and made such a transformational change so quickly. You can't sort of underestimate how, at the time, um, how radical and and how disruptive it was. And it was interesting because it was a whole philosophy because, you know, a lot of the reforms were around, we've been talking about markets and, um, you know, being more profitable. But they were never set up as a, as a, as a business. They were set up as a public service. That, you yeah. know, when they, when they built the electricity system, it was all about, you know, providing energy to the people and providing power to the people. It was all about, you know, for the economy. It was never really set up as a, as a proper business as such. And so it was kind of unfair to say, well, these things aren't profitable or they're not performance driven or whatever it is. So this kind of buys into Jeff Bertram's yeah, argument uh, around Yeah, I mean that was the, un- the unfairness. It was never, they were never expected to be that way. They, they, they were set up as a public hmm. service and very much the people who worked there were a lot of engineers and, and that sort of thing and, and their ethos was around doing this for the country and, and building a great power system and for the benefit of New Zealand. All right, so Paul, at the beginning you mentioned there were two parts to this story. That's the first part. Yeah, and obviously there's some real depth of feeling about that, but it's the second part where things get even more controversial. 
it always felt like there wasn't as strong justification for that split as there was for the split of ECNZ. And I knew it was going to be contentious. Ultimately, the neoliberal project is to shrink the state and remove it from large areas of activity where the market is to prevail. It wasn't a broader macroeconomic debate. It was very much a local community. And many of the members of parliament felt keenly about that. The most polarising aspect was the split of the lines and energy companies. A lot of people hated it. I don't think any of us in the national government expected there would be such a howl of outrage from a lot of our own supporters. OK, we know that the Bradford reforms were all about trying to introduce competition to the market. That doesn't seem particularly contentious. So what was the second part? Well, remember earlier when we talked about the local electricity supply authorities? Yep, so they're the guys who run the distribution lines and the retail that took place on those lines, right? Exactly. Well, the second stage of the Bradford reforms was to separate those two functions. The point was to allow us to choose any electricity retailer rather than being forced to buy from the local ESA. For that to work, the new retailers needed access to the local power lines. Now, the way they decided to do that was by essentially forcing lines companies to sell their retail division. Okay, well, a forced asset sale, I can, uh, I can see how that would be contentious. Yeah, lots of people were really upset about this. That's because the ESAs were local, community-owned, and often democratic. Communities had a strong sense of involvement and local pride in their ESA. The ownership split caused a lot of hard feelings at the local level. But it wasn't a, an ideological issue as many people have asserted. The changes that we put in place and which I uh, shepherded through uh, were very well researched, very well tested in the marketplace as best we could, and very well tested against overseas experience. The political pitch that we decided to adopt was the one which I personally felt was the most important, and that was to give consumers the ability to choose who provided them with electricity, Essentially, they believe that by enabling retail competition, that is, letting you choose your supplier, you could shop around to get a better deal. And that is how it works now. If you don't like the prices or the service you're getting from your electricity supplier, you can have a look on PowerSwitch and swap to one of over 30 other retailers. But despite all these options, many of which are cheaper, most of us remain with one of the four large gen tailors or their subsidiaries. Yeah, well, I know that I am. Right. And this brings us to another important point. When ECNZ was split up, there was serious debate about whether the new generation companies should also be allowed to get involved in retail. That is, selling new power rather than just generating it. There was a discussion as to whether the Gentaliers should be generators and retailers. But on balance, we decided that we would leave them are able to be run. The one advantage of having integration between the generators and the retailers is that they can manage the vagaries of coping with supply shortages, demand shortages, much better than an individual retailer like Electric Kiwi or some of these other outfits. I know that there's debate about whether it's fair or not, and I notice small players arguing that it should be broken up, but they should have thought about that when they set up their business model. And so that's what happened. The decision was made to allow the gen tailors to form. They instantly became the largest players in our electricity system, and they still are. And that's actually where the word gen tailor comes from. 
It's a mashup of the words generator and retailer. And that decision is still very contentious in electricity circles. And that's, you know, those are circles where contention reigns. So what's retail competition got to do with splitting up the electricity supply authorities? Couldn't they just open up their lines to any retailer and still have their own separate retail offering? Well, they could. And in fact, at the time, that's exactly what they argued for. But the government was concerned. The ESAs owned the distribution lines and had their own retail. So in theory, they could make it impossible for others to compete. Why? Well, the theory was that they could make their retail businesses look far cheaper than they were by loading all administration costs onto the lines instead. That would make switching to any other retailer seem really uncompetitive. But not everyone shared this concern. I mean, the first big mistake was to think that uh, local electricity authorities threatened to become dominant monopolists at the expense of consumers. That was stupid. For most of the period of New Zealand's history that we've had an electricity system, it has been socially focused, run by people with a public interest objective, with a mandate to serve, to provide a social service, essentially, and they've delivered very well on that mandate. So essentially, Jeff's viewpoint is that motivation is important. From his perspective, the idea monopoly suppliers would always cost more than competitive ones was unfounded. He believes that it depends more on the motivations of an organisation. And an organisation can be motivated by public benefit. I guess as long as it still covers its costs and earns enough to invest in the future. Yeah, that's basically it. Although electricity industry consultant Dave Reeve told us a different story. He was working at Waipa Networks during this part of the reform period, where he was tasked with calculating the lines charges for some of their large customers. There was no regulation about that. I was given no guidance on how to do the calculations. I, I mean, I wasn't told to try and make it look one way or the other. I was asked to do those calculations. Then it went somewhere else and someone had to decide how you allocated things like administration costs. And later on, it became obvious that the lines charges got loaded up with all those costs to make the energy businesses look more competitive than they actually were, which is why nobody could compete. So I guess that does sound like a legitimate concern. Well, yes, but the ownership split and forced sales were considered by many to be the extreme solution. Lots of people, including the ESAs, and really the stock exchange, believe regulating the businesses to provide equitable access to their distribution lines would have been enough. This was the option favoured by ESA President Doug Matheson. Here he is speaking on RNZ at that time. The line company would have to let competitors have access at the same price, and if it didn't... Anyone who is denied access can complain to the Commerce Commission, who will investigate it, and we're proposing they have the power to split them up. Not good enough, the government... And there was a strong argument to be made here. Rather than forcing the split, a lighter-touch approach would have been to regulate equal access. And after all, the new lines business was still natural monopolies. They still needed regulation and price control, irrespective of who owned them. This was something Max was keenly aware of. One of the recommendations I made very strongly to the Cabinet, which by and large accepted it, was that we had to put a form of price control on the monopoly parts of the system. In those days it was called CPI plus X. What that reflected was the fact that the monopoly parts of the systems, for the most part, still had a lot of fat in them, And that fact could gradually be squeezed out over time by the decisions that they would make about pricing. Left in the monopoly position, they would simply increase the prices on a cost-plus basis, as used to happen. 
Unfortunately, the Labor Party at the time we were putting the reforms through the House fought these price control parts of the system very savagely. So, in fact, the reform package that I put up, part of it didn't go in full, you know, into law and into the practice in its totality. So they made things very difficult in the early years after the reforms were put in to ensure that there was proper control over the monopoly parts of the system. The lines businesses are now regulated by the Commerce Commission. It's a classic case of industry capture of a regulatory process. The industry was effectively able to dictate the terms in which it was going to be so-called regulated and then use the regulator as a shield against both potential competitors and against public outrage at the way prices went up. I mean, the Commerce Commission is bending over backwards at the moment to protect the enormously overstated asset values of lines companies in New Zealand by allowing them accelerated depreciation, for example, which means consumers can be forced to pay two or three times over for the cost of the assets in order to enable the companies to write them down without losing a cent of revenue. It's insane. So it's fairly obvious there are legitimate gripes with how the lines companies have been regulated, Paul. Well, that's true, and I think that could be a subject for a whole podcast in itself. The other concern some people had at the time, and this one is a bit of a political issue, is that Lyons businesses were subsidising residential homes at the expense of industrial and commercial users. Now, the Commerce Commission came out and told them they had to stop doing that. And this forced them to raise prices for residential households like you and I. I say this is a political issue because whether you think the subsidy was positive or negative kind of comes down to your own worldview. But for Max, it was negative. You had a supposedly democratic organisation making decisions which benefited consumers. They're making prices for household consumers cheaper than the true cost of supplying electricity to them because they were the voters who put the people into the ESAs. They were being heavily cross-subsidised by farm users, by commercial users and by uh, industrial users. That was shown very clearly in the early stages of the readjustment of prices so that people paid much closer to what the true cost of electricity was. People should pay you know, pretty much what it costs to provide them with such and such a service. Now, that's not a popular theory for a lot of people, but um, it meant that because there was heavy cross-subsidisation to households, New Zealand industries weren't competitive overseas. It made a huge difference to the effectiveness and, and the competitiveness of uh, New Zealand industry. Okay, so basically, whatever you think about the unwinding of cross-subsidies and the more technical aspects of the reforms, essentially what they did was, one, split ECNZ up into competing generators, and two, separate the wires that deliver our power from the companies that sell it to us, creating competing retailers. Yep, that's basically it, John. And the third thing they did was they also laid the groundwork and the systems that let us choose and be able to switch between energy retailers. Right, so throughout this, we've heard about competition, lowering prices and improving efficiency, all that good stuff. Other than letting me decide who sends it to me, what, you know, what impacts have the reforms actually had on my power bill? Well, unfortunately, they probably haven't done either of those things. Data from StatsNZ is very clear. 
the industry's productivity is lower now than it was in the 90s. Really? Okay, so that's a, that's a cross in the box for efficiency. What about lower prices? Well, as Max says... Depends what sort of consumer you were. Look, there's no question that prices are higher. I've done a bit of quick maths, and after stripping out things like the GST increase, new environmental charges, things like that, residential power is around 35% higher than it was in 1998. Now, to be fair, industrial users have seen similar price rises, although they're still paying significantly less than households. But on the flip side, if you're a commercial customer, you're actually paying slightly less than you were in 1998, in real terms, that is. So does this mean the reforms on the whole have raised the price of electricity and shifted the cost burden from industry to consumers like you and me? Well, John, that's a hard judgment to make. Although prices are definitely higher for us as residential customers, it's very difficult to say what would have happened without the reform. But certainly, Max and Jenny look back on them as a success. Heaven knows what New Zealand would be like today had they not been done. I would argue that not only is the consumer getting lower electricity prices than would otherwise occur if it was a monopoly, the central government's also getting a dividend stream which they can then use to put into the programs that they determine are important, whether that be social welfare or defence or whatever. I think the Bradford reforms have been unfairly maligned and Max, for a period of time, was personally unfairly maligned. But it takes courage and character to do some of these big leadership projects, and Max had that in bucket loads, as did the other ministers who sat round this table and diligently unpicked the complexity of what we faced. I think it was a gift to New Zealand, which only over time will be realised. And every time I've seen a government come in and say they're going to review the electricity sector only to proceed to do nothing, I think it's an endorsement of uh, the reforms that Max, as minister, along with the team, led. So how about our economist friend, Jeff Bertram? What's his perspective on it? Well, unsurprisingly, it's somewhat different to Jenny and Max's. But he does believe it could have been different. If you do look at the detail of the data, it's worth looking at the price track for residential electricity supply from 98 through to 2002. And what you find looking at those numbers is that in the two years after the Bradford reforms, prices came down. And they came down precisely because there was a period of uncertainty when players in the industry could not be certain that the competition wouldn't break out and they couldn't be certain that regulation wouldn't suddenly become effective. By 2002... It was clear to all the big players in the industry, first, the competition wasn't going to break out because they had nailed it. They'd successfully bought up all the retail customers. They'd trialled the process of breaking an independent retailer when they drove on energy out in 2001 by withholding hedge contracts. Having watched that process play out, the industry knew that anti-competitive practices were going to work a charm and they were going to be tolerated. The regulation wasn't coming either. And so by 2002, the industry was relaxing and from there on you just see the price rises year after year after year, the price goes up. Okay, Paul, let's pull all of this together. So what are we to think? Have the reforms actually worked for New Zealanders? Look, it's really hard to tell because lots of things have happened since the reforms, right? Yeah. So it's hard to look back and go, well... 
the reforms promised lower prices and prices are higher, therefore the reforms were a failure. Because lots of things that happened in the last 25 years that would have happened anyway, right? Uh, that put pressure on power prices. So for example, we bought lots of new power stations, we invested billions of dollars into the national grid. These are good investments. We ended up with a much more renewable power system. It's much more reliable. These, these are good investments. But they did put pressure on power prices. So it's hard to look back and conclude that the reforms were a success or a failure based on the price of electricity. Right, but what about how successful retail competition is? Has competition itself delivered the outcomes we were promised? Again, it's hard to know. It's certainly true we have a lot more retail brands. We have around 30 retail brands today. You know, back in 2003, 2004, we had around nine. So there's certainly lots more choice, but it's a choice that people aren't particularly excited about. And we see that through low switching rates, People, you know, don't seem that excited about electricity retail. They're not switching the numbers you'd think they would. So for a lot of people, it's not a choice that they particularly welcome or are excited by. But has competition kept a lid on prices? Again, it's hard to tell. There's an argument that says that the prices could have been even higher without electricity retail. Mm. Right. So conclusion, too hard to tell? It is too hard to tell, but it's also a bit of a, a pointless exercise to sort of speculate of what would have happened had we not had the reforms. The fact is we did, and we are where we are. So we can't turn the clock back and go back to how things were. It, we just, it just can't happen. So the best thing we can do is just make the best of it. So we think, you know, that for all its failings, there's a lot of potential for consumers in, in electricity retail, but it hasn't been realised yet. Mm. But it could be. So just because... People think electricity retail hasn't delivered for consumers in the past. Doesn't mean it can't deliver for consumers in the future. So what will make it deliver? So there's a few things that can happen. One of the problems with electricity retail is structural. You know, you've got these large gentailers that dominate the market. And because they own the power stations, the generation part of the business, and they also have retail, it's made it really hard for independent retailers to compete. So you combine that with general consumer apathy, it's made it really hard for electricity retail to develop in the way that it was envisaged in the reforms. We never really got the electricity retail as it was imagined because of that kind of structural flaw. And there were reasons for it. Well, I won't get into here. They're, they're quite complex. It's probably time to revisit that. It may be an opportunity now to have a new series of reforms. Mm. What do you think the future holds? Well, I believe we start to see some glimmers of positive change. I mean, what we're seeing now is really exciting because we're seeing technology evolve like solar, batteries, EVs, smart meters are all coming together and I believe these are going to offer some real choice for consumers going forward. So I'm quite excited about the future and the future of electricity retail and I believe it's going to head in a direction that was always envisaged of offering consumers some real choice. You know, my belief is, and I'm excited about this, is that we'll continue to see evolution of electricity retail. And I believe that evolution is going to be positive for consumers. All right, thanks, Paul. Thank you for your views on that. And, you know, based on what you've said, I guess the question still remains, is it time for the next set of reforms? Or are we able to, to push forward in a positive way with, with the market structured the way it is? Find out on the next episode of Consume This. If you're looking to save money on your power bill, you could do a lot worse than heading over to our free, independent site, powerswitch.org.nz to see if you could be on a cheaper plan. 
you might be surprised how much money you can save. Typically, households save between $300 and $400 a year when they switch. And it only takes around 10 minutes, which is a pretty good return. Full disclosure, PowerSwitch is operated by ConsumerNZ and run by Paul Fuge, the guy off this podcast. You've been listening to Consume This, hosted by me, John Duffy, and with a special guest appearance from my colleague, PowerSwitch manager, Paul Fuge. Consume This is brought to you by ConsumerNZ, and this episode was produced by Tom Wrist-Smith. Our thanks go out to everyone who took the time to speak with us and help us with research for this episode. You know who you are. Keep an ear out later in Season 4 when we'll be dropping some electricity bonus content, including the full interview with former Prime Minister Jenny Shipley. There's a lot of fascinating stuff that couldn't all fit into this episode. Matiwa. Hello, I'm Abby Darman and I work in the campaigns team at Consumer New Zealand. I want to tell you about some of the exciting work we're doing here at Consumer New Zealand. Right now, literally, as we speak, we are working really hard to keep big businesses and our lawmakers in check. So we're currently engaged in taking on unfair retirement village contracts, misleading supermarket pricing and dodgy green claims. To keep up this good work, we need to raise $50,000 before the 24th of September. So please, if you can, help us to help others by heading to consumer.org.nz forward slash donate. Thanks so much.